This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal, interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Fraley. Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Uh, With us today is Dr. Peter Shallot from Seattle, Washington. Peter, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you. So Peter, tell us a little bit about what you do. So I am a primary care general internal medicine physician uh, in Seattle. Um, I have, it's an independent practice, which is kind of unusual anymore, and I practice with two physician assistants and a nurse practitioner. We do, we do uh, general primary care. We do a lot of HIV care. We do a lot of PrEP, transgender care, and general primary care for anybody. How long have you been in private practice? Uh, This is my 29th year. And when did you start practicing medicine? In 1990. 1990. Okay. So you were a medical resident then during like the HIV? Right. 1980s. Yeah. Do you mind sharing with us what that was like for you? Yeah. I mean, so my... My medical training kind of paralleled the development of the HIV epidemic because I started med school in 81, which was the year that um, the first cases of AIDS were described. Um, I saw my first patient with AIDS-related problems probably in 82 or 83 as a med student. I also had friends that became ill during that time. and then by the time I started residency in 85, the epidemic was really full-blown. And so during my residency, we saw a lot of people in the hospital with AIDS. Um, it was a thing by the time I was a resident. Were there people you knew just from like your social life? There were such? people I knew. There were a lot of people I knew in the 80s, um, including um, a couple of med school classmates, actually. Um, uh Yeah, I mean, so it was kind of a fearful time, right? Because especially before the test, in the first few years before the test, um, you know, you'd, you'd like be looking at your body and looking for lesions and you got a cough. You didn't know if that meant the first sign that something terrible was going to happen. And yeah. Were you out during that time? Yeah, so I was out. I was out before I went to med school, and then I kind of had to go halfway back into the closet to go to med school. And in the early 80s, it still wasn't okay. It still was, it would have, you know, um, the closest I came to being out in my, so, so I, I mean, I was out in terms of out with my family and friends, and I had a partner and all that when I even applied to med school. But um, and part of why I, what led me to go to med school was I was volunteering at an LGBT counseling center, Seattle Counseling Service, which is really what what gave me the whole idea to go into a helping profession, which ended up being medicine. And I actually put that in my essay in a kind of sideways way. It was in my admission essay to the medical school. I talked about working at Seattle Counseling Service, but that name itself is kind of closeted, right? So unless people knew what that was, um, they didn't necessarily know that it had to do with, with gay. And that was like the most out that I was applying. And then during medical school, it was hard. I was 
probably the most out person in my class, but what that meant was that when I socialized with my classmates, my partner came along, and and also um, events that involved faculty. My, you know, if we had faculty that would like invite us for dinner in large groups of students, and and he'd come along. So in that sense, I was out, but you wouldn't really talk about it so much, and and so um, it was weird because I had gay and lesbian classmates who were much more closeted and they were kind of afraid of me that I would out them and I mean I, I remember being at, at a bar at a gay bar just chatting with a group of friends and across the room was a classmate of mine that I knew was gay I mean but so I went over to him with a few of my friends and I said hi Michael you know this is um and I introduced him to my friends and said Michael's a classmate of mine and and he became very upset. He was really angry at me for telling them that he was, that it was sort of outing him in a, in a weird way. So, and he ended up dying of AIDS, just by the way. So, so when, when did you, so you came fully out after medical school? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, so, it, I mean, it was, it was, different. It was like when I was a resident in the latter half of the 80s, I was out in the sense of I didn't hide it at all. <laughs> but I, it was true in medical school too, but you, you, you wasn't out in the sense of I don't know how to put it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to put it. I mean, I was out in terms of living a gay life openly mm -hmm. as a, as a med student and a physician, but um, you know, like just for example, as a medical student, we had a a newsletter that came out quarterly, and and a bunch of LGBT students met to kind of have like a little support, and I wrote an article about it for the newsletter. It said the the headline was "Gay Students Meet." And again, I didn't identify any of the people, but they got upset with me for writing this article. So, I mean, I was just trying to push the envelope a little bit. It was really a different atmosphere because, honestly, because, you know, you could, like, not get licensed mm. um, if you were openly gay. So you could be gay and out in a kind of sideways way without proclaiming it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but, I mean, I joined the GLMA when it was founded, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, when it was founded in 81, I went to their first meeting. I wasn't permitted to be called a founding member because I was a student and not a physician, which I thought was really weird. <laughs> um, but um, so in that sense, you know, I guess I was as out as you could be uh -huh. then. And <clears throat> so I guess what I'm curious about as well is like when you were working in the hospital during the AIDS crisis. Um, being a gay-identified doctor or self-identified doctor in the hospital setting with these patients, was there a different uh, sort of responsibility for you with these patients, or did everybody sort of jump in and help out? Or Yeah, um, most people were fine. Um, with it, so uh, I mean, yes, in the sense that I felt um, more like trying to be an advocate for the 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 guys that I that were in the hospital with AIDS, and and there were some times when those patients sort of got channeled to me. 
um, sometimes for odd reasons, like um, I had a hepatitis B vaccine as part of a study when I was a med student, when I was like a first or second year med student, the University of Washington had a study and they were looking for gay students, gay male students to test the hepatitis B vaccine on. And so I got the vaccine as part of a study. And then when I was a resident later in the 80s, the hep B vaccine still wasn't um, widely given for healthcare providers. And so um, I got to be the one that like drew blood on the folks with HIV or hepatitis B because I had uh, been immunized for hepatitis B. So people were afraid of hepatitis B and a lot of people hadn't been immunized and I was. So I got to, you know, do that. And, and so you certainly overcame your fear of getting stuck with a needle and stuff. And I kind of felt like, you know, who knows, maybe I had it already. So I, I wasn't fearful of drawing blood or, or giving shots or whatever to, to folks with um, HIV or Hep B. Hep B was also, you know, kind of feared then. Mm -hmm. So, so <clears throat> after you were done with residency, where did you go next for your career? So I stayed in Seattle. I will say just one more thought about yeah. being out. So when I was a fourth-year medical student and you're applying to residencies, and I, and I had never, like, openly said to the administration at University of Washington that I was gay. It was just, like, just not hidden, but it wasn't um, proclaimed. Um, but when I was applying for residencies, I went and I talked to the dean of students um, at University of Washington. I said, um, in my essay for residencies, would it be bad judgment for me to include stuff about being gay and about wanting to work in the gay community, et cetera? And he said, yeah, don't do it. Hmm. And uh, his, name, his name was uh, Zen Camacho, really great guy. And he said, what he said to me was, I'm brown, and I don't say that either when I'm applying for stuff hmm. because I don't want people to um, make a decision based on, on that part of me. Hmm. Um, so it was interesting because I thought he was a very supportive person, and, but he was just frank with me. He said, you know, it's going to uh, impair your chances of getting into a residency. But anyway, I went to, I trained at UW the whole way through. I got into residency. That wasn't a problem. Um, I, um, you, but you asked about what, what happened when I, yeah, um, where did you head when I finished? Yeah. So, so, um, I had kind of a, um, uh, complicated residency because that was the other thing. When I was, when I was a med student, I wasn't sure what I wanted, what specialty I wanted to go into. And um, uh, I talked to uh, one, of the, one of the deans at University of Washington who was an internist, and I said, I can't really decide between psychiatry and medicine. He said, if you can't decide, don't go into medicine. That was like the whole conversation. I was prepared to have a long discussion with him, but that's what he said. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to psychiatry. So I, so I applied and, and, and got into the psychiatric residency at University of Washington, and it was very obvious at the beginning, from the beginning, that it was not the right thing to do. So um, I wanted to go into medicine, and they, I had to reapply. So I did two internships. I did an internship in psychiatry first. Um, and then as an intern, I applied for the medicine program and got into um, the medicine residency. So I did three years of medicine, which is the full residency, and then after that, uh, chief residency, which is sort of like an extra year where you're supervising the residents at a hospital. So I was a chief resident at Providence um, uh, 
that was 89 through 90. And in the meantime, um, while I was chief resident, uh, a physician approached me who was uh, in private practice who uh, had a, a, a gay practice and was sort of known to be the person to go to if you were gay and had an STD, for example. Um, and he was uh, wanting to retire and uh, for health reasons. And his practice was kind of uh, wound down because of his health. So it was like a halftime thing. And um, so I said, sure. Um, so while I was chief resident, I helped him out in the office. I sort of started working in this office, which I sh wasn't supposed to do, sort of mm -hmm. overlapping between being chief resident and, and uh, taking over his practice at the same time. So there's like a six-month overlap where I got to meet his patients and stuff. And then I just took it over. Um, I bought the practice for $15,000 wow. and uh, paid it off over a couple years, never took out a loan. And then it just built. And that was, so when I started full-time, that was 1990, mm -hmm. and that was really at a time when AIDS was just this huge thing. And so it quickly became a big part of what I did, like huge. And how was so. that experience for you? It was like, it was really, so going from residency into private practice doing AIDS care, I'm, I'll call it AIDS care, mm -hmm. now I don't want to call it HIV, but at the time really AIDS care, it was really like being, like parachuting into a battlefield. It was totally like that and without any reinforcements, you know. So um, there were a small number of us that did it all. Um, the patients appropriately channeled into a small number of practices and um, um, it was it was crazy crazy time mm -hmm. would you tell us a little bit about your um, box with your cards yeah <laughs> so you know so taking care of folks with AIDS when there was no treatment was a really um how do you say it? Really challenging emotionally. That's kind of a dry way to say it. It was a really kind of just crazy, horrible. Um, but you, like I said, it was like being in a battlefield and getting the wounded and trying to deal with them, you know, and they're just piling up. And um, and people were so sick and, and people would die these hideous deaths. And, um, uh, you know, we we did not have death with dignity, and a lot of people wanted to be helped to not suffer. And I was actually part of a Supreme Court case we lost mm. um, about that, and and how to deal with uh, seeing people that you knew were going to die, and then seeing them die, and seeing them get really sick and sort of tortured along the way was really hard. And um, so I had these little rituals um, that I did. Um, um, and, and one of them was this little box of cards. So um, the whole ritual was that uh, we had paper charts, right? There was no EMR. So the whole ritual involved if somebody died, I had a rubber stamp that said deceased that somebody gave me because it was like a joke this rubber stamp. You're supposed to put it on your, your mail that you don't want and put it back in the mailbox. So mm -hmm. they gave me this rubber stamp that said deceased. And so it was kind of being a little bit defiant. I would, I would stamp that on the front of the chart and I would write the date that they died. 
if there was an obituary, I'd put, you know, cut out in the newspaper, put in the chart, and then I'd write their name and the date that they died on an index card, and I kept those cards um, in this little box that I still have um, that now when I look at it, it's kind of like a uh, sort of a timeline of all these people that, that died. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of little rituals. There was that ritual. I had a specific, um, sim- a specific sympathy card that I bought in bulk. Um, that I still have. That I have many of those cards. I still use them. Uh, it's kind of a pretty photograph on the front. Um, um, it's it's an interesting card. It's actually it comes from Peter Simon, who's a photographer. He's Carly Simon's brother, and. Um, I used to buy them like by the dozen and would call his wife like they have like a little mail order thing in Massachusetts. I would call and I talked to him one time. I, he said he knew what I did, right? So I said he said I think I know what these cards are for. I'm like, yeah. Um uh so that's all part of the ritual. I just felt like I had to do like this closure thing with each patient that died. And I also would say things to the people left behind because um you know um, sometimes things like the obituaries would say things like somebody lost a long battle with HIV, even if they said HIV, sometimes it didn't say HIV, but I wouldn't say that. I would say they won, you know, because, because I felt like if somebody, you know, did their best and, and tried to keep their suffering to a minimum, I felt like that was, um, a triumph, um, if you knew that you were going to die anyway, at least if you did did the best you could, then I felt like that was a victory. So I tried to put it to turn it around and tell you know the the survivors um, of the folks that died to say no, you know it's not a, a defeat. Mm-hmm. You know it was kind of it was, but you know. Yeah. How many patients do you think you lost for those years? Um, maybe five hundred between, you know, so starting 90 when I started practice, and then it it dropped dramatically in the mid-90s, but I still had people die of AIDS-related complications all the way into, like, 01, 02. And there were people who either couldn't tolerate the meds we had back then, or they, the meds failed and got... The meds weren't as good. They were good starting around 96, but they weren't as good as what we have now, so people still... Some people still died up till the early 2000s. What has it been like for you to watch in the development of the treatment for HIV and, and how people are living longer coming from the time that you oh, it's did amazing. to now? It's amazing. I mean, so by 1995, when I, 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 I was getting burned out, right, you know, so because um, I was having, uh, by 95, I was having uh, a few deaths per week, every week, and... There was one day when um, I had two uh, patients that I'd worked with really, really closely for a long time, and I felt really like an emotional connection with them. There was one day when the two people died on the same day, and, and I couldn't deal with it. That was the one time that I really just kind of lost it and said, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And um, and I'm not sure how long I could have kept doing it because it, you start just feeling hopeless, you know. And, and I mean, because we had these little these little incremental things we could do, like we knew how to treat some of the opportunistic infections and extend people's lives like six months or a year, and but that wasn't 
it, you know. And then when the meds came out, when the good meds came out, the good treatments came out, the cocktails of three drugs, um, it was so revolutionary that it just changed the disease state like a 180. And I think in medicine there's very few other examples like that, like maybe insulin in the 1920s where type 1 diabetics would just die and then they wouldn't once insulin came around. But there's a lot of other conditions in medicine that are chronic conditions that aren't uh, sort of um, can't be stopped in their tracks. I mean, it's not like a cure, right? But the virus really just got, kind of gets stopped in its tracks, and the natural history of HIV infection just gets aborted if people are on these meds. And so to witness that was just this amazing gift. I mean, as, as, a, as a healthcare provider, I think it's very unusual to witness that and to be in the before and after of a treatment like that that's so revolutionary. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, now we are at this age of, like, PrEP and undetectable equals untransmittable right. and a normal life expectancy. Right. It, it's just such a stark contrast. It's, it's completely different. I mean, um, in uh, up till probably 05, 06, the most common new patient that I would see is somebody who'd been just tested positive for HIV. There was like this parade. and, and I w- Or I would see... Uh, a sexually active gay man in his 20s who was HIV negative, and I w- would be pretty sure that they would become HIV positive at a certain point. And it's not like that now. It's really not like that. So most of our new patients are HIV negative and may be interested in PrEP. We see very few new uh, positive patients. And like I said, I used to have folks become infected after they were a patient, and that's very rare now. I saw a patient... A couple months ago, a young man who I was pretty sure had acute HIV infection, and it was so upsetting to me. It mm-hmm. was so upsetting to me because I felt like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't want to see this again. And it was actually the same day that I had somebody die who had HIV, who died of of anal cancer. Um, and so seeing, like, the end of somebody's life related to their HIV and then seeing a young man that I thought was newly infected, turned out it wasn't, mm-hmm. but um, was it, it, it hit me in a really um, horrible way. Yeah. What are the main health problems your patients are facing now, then? You mentioned the anal cancer. Yeah, and not, that's an issue that's not a really common issue. I mean, honestly, the the... the the main health problems I deal with now are the general medical problems that people get as they get older. Mm-hmm. You know, having been in practice almost 30 years, it's weird for me because I take care of people that were in their 20s when I met them, and now they're, like, approaching 60. My, my patients are mostly now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're getting the same things anybody would get whether or not they have HIV. So of my patients, a lot of them have HIV. Some of them don't but they're still having their diabetes and their heart disease and their hypertension. And the HIV, in most cases, is um, not the issue. It's there, and they're on a daily medicine for it, and it behaves itself, and the things that are more of a problem are everything else. Mm -hmm. 
So you have also been involved in like the um, HIV therapeutic uh, pharmaceutical development of some of the drugs. Right. Uh, what was your decision about getting into that? That went way back. So in the how that happened was kind of um, uh, accidental. So let me take a step back. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the early 1990s, uh, Swedish Hospital, to its great credit, or the credit of, of a few people, Swedish Hospital had a really good HIV care program. Um, they had an HIV ward, um, and they had really dedicated nurses, and there was this particular nurse, Margot Baikonin, who was um, in charge of that. And um, they never got a lot of credit for it for a couple of reasons. One is because the county hospital, Harborview, um, uh, publicized its HIV care a lot. And so they were always the ones that were in the newspaper about HIV. And Swedish, I think, was uh, closeted and shy about that. They didn't want to be known as that because that would hurt their upscale reputation. That was really, but those of us that did it knew that they were doing a ton, probably more HIV care than elsewhere. It wasn't publicized. So Margot was fabulous. Margot was just like the goddess of HIV care, and she was everybody's mother. And when I first met her, I'm like, how can this be you? You're so young, because she really was. But um, but she was just so great. You know, we had patients whose families uh, rejected them, and she would um, sort of be a substitute mom for these guys, and and uh, she was just a fierce, like, fighter. She was just really great. And um, so around 1995, when still we didn't have good meds for HIV, Margot said, why don't we have an HIV research program at Swedish, because Swedish had other research programs and it was a little bit like poking Swedish in the eye because, again, they, they wanted to be known for orthopedics and cardiovascular surgery and things that brought in a lot of money and fame um, and not HIV. But um, we, we did it. And so so Margot asked me, I'm like, sure, let's do it. So we just said, hi, we're doing HIV research here at Swedish. And um, we hired a, a nurse, Janice Price, who was really great and was also a very sort of fierce advocate and we started doing uh, clinical trials through the hospital um, and so that was starting so we we actually were part of trials of many drugs that never got approved so um, uh, imivirine which was a non-nuke and um, uh, a defavir for HIV which was horribly toxic um, uh, and it went from there but um, so we, so we ended up participating in a lot of clinical trials, and at that time, that was a way for a lot of people to get meds that weren't available otherwise, so there was a lot of interest in the trials. Uh, then as time went on, the program got bigger and bigger at Swedish. Um, Janice, unfortunately, um, uh, in her early 50s, developed a brain tumor and died very rapidly, mm-hmm. like maybe a month or two after she was diagnosed, and she was this very vivacious woman. She was probably in her late 40s or early 50s when she died. And the, the program suffered from that a little bit, and we started moving some of the research trials into the office, and we ended up um, uh, moving everything into the office at a certain point. Um, and uh, and, and it, it grew uh, pretty pretty big. So we ended up being part of 
so when a, when a new drug is, is being developed, they recruit uh, clinics and hospitals to test it on people. And uh, so we, we were part of the development of, of most of the drugs now that are um, available for HIV. And we did other things with the research program, like um, in the early 2000s when we still had a lot of people who were uh, couldn't be treated because their virus was resistant to some of the older drugs, there were these expanded access programs. And uh, which, what that meant was that people who had no other options could get the drug before it was approved. And uh, those programs are regulated like uh, a research program. So uh, there's a consent form. It has to go through the FDA. It has to go through human subjects. So I would sit in the human subjects committee, present these things. And what toward the um, end of the research effort at Swedish, from about 2000 to about 2005, we had a lot of expanded access programs for new drugs, and other institutions in town couldn't do it because it would take them too long. So like University of Washington couldn't get it through their IRB, which is the human subjects uh, organization, couldn't do it. Uh, fast enough to get access for patients, and so they used us. So especially for two drugs, for um, uh, darunavir and um, uh, etravirine uh, in the early 2000s, we did the expanded access for the city. So we had a few hundred patients uh, on each drug through expanded access. So that was a great thing that, that Swedish did. Um, and Swedish um, ate the, the cost, the administrative cost, um, so it was um, there's a little side piece of the of the research program that that was cool. Yeah, what excites you so much about the research component? Oh, you know, um, <laughs> it's I have to say that it was more exciting when when there weren't that many options and there were these radical new drugs or drugs that would work for people where nothing else worked. That was great because you knew that you know people shouldn't go into a, a study. Uh, for their own benefit. They should go mm -hmm. into a study for altruistic reasons to help develop a drug that might help other people. But in this case, these these trials really did help the subjects, the volunteers. Um, and so that was very exciting. Now it's, it's less, but it still feels like you're making a good contribution. I've turned down trials that I felt either weren't ethical or wouldn't add anything. Mm. Um, but even if if this next trial that I get asked about is just a small incremental improvement, um, it's still worth doing. And so there's a sense of satisfaction um, in in helping develop another option for people. It is different now compared to before because the folks that are in the trial would probably do fine on a prescription drug. It's just a question of um, uh, helping something, helping develop something that might be a little bit better. The one exception, so there are two exceptions. One is we're doing a PrEP trial. So the PrEP trial is a new kind of thing for us. Uh, it's good to have more than, we just have one drug now for PrEP, and it, it will be good to have more than that. And so um, I think that's a, a benefit, and it's a great benefit to the patients. They get their free PrEP and STD screening. And we're also doing um, now our, our first um, cure trial, uh, which if, if more trials like that start coming along, uh, that would be um, 
kind of reinvigorating. Uh, the, the CURE trial is um, a very early stage trial. We have one person in it, and he's just like so interested. I mean, there's no promise or hope that it's going to cure, but the idea is to learn more about how we might be able to cure HIV. And, and when I see this person for a study visit, I, I fantasize about having, this is a phase one trial, I fantasize about having a phase two or three trial that really looks like it will produce a cure, and I just kind of imagine how people might be interested in participating in a trial like that. Mm -hmm. So, so that'd be fun. I'm, I'm hoping that will happen. Yeah, it, it must be just really surreal to start a career in the height of an epidemic and now be a principal investigator, like on a cure study. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a progression. Crazy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. I mean, I, obviously I do HIV medicine as well. And I think about the day when we will have a cure and how wonderful that is, or the day that the treatment is kind of what it is today, where it's very few side effects, one pill a day. Right. Suppressed. Um, and it's just sort of amazing to see this thing that you specialized in um, become rather easy to treat. Yeah. Not for everybody. Right, right. But... For a lot of people, yeah, it's, it's sort of marvelous to see. Yeah, you mentioned that you you know have taken care of patients for almost thirty years, um, certain patients right. um, through their whole lifespan for that period of time, their whole adult lives. Right, uh, that is so unique in today's yeah. medical industry. You know, most people have a job for two, three years and then move on, and you've been in Seattle under the same clinic for thirty years. Yeah. Um. Your impact on this community must be huge um, in terms of people's interaction with the clinic, um, the stability of the clinic. Um, yeah, I don't think about it as my impact on the community. I think about it as a contribution mm -hmm. to people's lives. I mean, um, from the beginning, especially dealing with people that were so sick. Um, I always thought about, in the, in the old days when people were dying of AIDS, I always thought about what a loss to society it was that these people who could have had decades more of life and made a contribution in science, arts, teaching, driving a bus, whatever, but contributing to our society and their lives were cut short. And then once we had good treatment and their lives, people's lives were not cut short. I felt like my role was sort of helping this, helping people have the life that they were supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's an impact on this, on the, the population here. I don't know. I think I, I'm a very sort of one-on-one -on -one person. So I think more in terms of the individual person and, um, helping them, um, live, have a decent life. Mm. Now, you also do a lot of educating, right? You teach yes. at the U as well. Um, what got <clears throat> you involved in, in teaching and what subject matters do you sort of address? So, yeah, there's really kind of two kinds of teaching I do. So I don't, I don't ever, I've never considered myself as being like a teacher. I really think of myself as, as um, having this profession where I deal with people's health on a one, like I said, on a one-to-one, -one, in a one-to-one -one way. But um, ever since I started practice, um, I've 
essentially I've been called on to teach about LGBT health. That's been the most common as far as in a structured setting like at University of Washington. Um, so uh, I've done that like for the last, since 1990. Um, and it's usually one or two sessions, classroom sessions in various health professions like MD, PA, nurse practitioner. And um, it's interesting how that's changed because again, when I started doing this in the beginning, a lot of what I talked about was trying to um, desensitize and destigmatize um, about LGBT people. And, and at the beginning also, really, it was sort of a semi-hostile audience. Mm. And, you know, I went through med school and residency being, like I said, sort of out but not vocal about it, but just being myself and not hiding. And then the next year, I'm in front of the next year's class of medical students talking about LGBT health in my practice and all that. Uh, there you go. Um, but it, it's evolved so much. And, and so every year, it's like the lecture has to change to keep up with the students. So the students have gone from being pretty confrontational. I used to get evaluations like, um, what if you just think this is wrong, mm. that these people are wrong and misguided and, and, and that you shouldn't be um, uh, sympathetic and supportive of a lifestyle that's unhealthy, um, to sort of the opposite, um, where I'm like not, um, I'm not there enough, like they're ahead of me in terms of their acceptance and uh, broad-mindedness about gender issues and sexuality issues. I mean, I, uh, yeah. So, and I, so now I get corrected the other way. I get, I get um, some comments the other way, like, uh, yeah. I'm, but, but um, so that's been wonderful, actually, to see that the students are really, they, they like, eat it up now. They, they want it. Um, so there's that. There's the LGBT health. Thing, which I still also think does do some desensitization because I think some of the people in the class that have issues with uh, sexual and gender minorities um, don't feel comfortable vocalizing that because they think that, that that's an unpopular opinion, so they keep to themselves, but so they still get a little bit of that teaching. The other kind of teaching I do really has to do with um, clinical teaching in the office, and, and so... Um, one of the um, one aspect of that is uh, a very intense training of people I've worked with. So um, I feel like in in terms of HIV care, it's still there. Still aren't a lot of providers that do HIV care. It's it's a very small uh, elite group of people, and um, I've trained now several providers doing HIV care, PAs, nurse practitioner. Um, and now uh, uh, Swedish Family Practice, um, which trains family docs uh, at the hospital across the street, um, asked if we could help train their residents in HIV care, uh, specific residents that want to do it, not just kind of general information. Because we get residents come through who want to see what we do, but they don't want to do it themselves, but they want to learn about either HIV or LGBT health uh, by, by visiting us for a few sessions. But this is different. So... 
um, now we we are a site for the uh, for a longitudinal clinic for two uh, family practice residents that uh, plan to do HIV care when they're done and hope to get certified in it by the time they're done. So they're seeing patients in our office in an ongoing way. So what that will mean is that uh, I will have helped uh, contribute to the uh, personnel pool of people that do HIV care by helping train these folks. Um, so that's kind of the other um, kind of training we do. We also, University of Washington now has um, an LGBT health track, and so we're having uh, med students uh, uh, spend a month with us who uh, get a full month of intense exposure to LGBT health. Uh, and again, they may or may not um, utilize it, but just for example, we had a, um, the first, the first um, uh, student we had uh, in that rotation uh, is someone that wants to go into pediatrics. And he really knew nothing about LGBT people. So when they, when the University of Washington uh, offered this, they had 19 students wanting to do it, and they didn't have enough sites for 19 students. So they, I think they have like four or five this year. But anyway, this one, one gentleman wants to go into pediatrics, and he really didn't know anything about LGBT health or people, LGBT people from a medical point of view. And he just soaked it up like a sponge. Mm. And we talked about it. I talked about it with him. I mean, as a pediatrician, that's going to be really valuable to him, right, in terms of both dealing with LGBT and questioning kids and adolescents, but also dealing with parents who are sexual or gender minorities and, you know, being comfortable with them as the parents of the kids he's treating. Uh, so um, I think that's a, a really useful um, education for somebody. Again, you have this, like, that, like these bookends of, like, not being able to be fully out at the beginning of your practice to now yeah. training people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's quite the progression. Yeah. In a short amount of time, really. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. You've been a bit of a champion for advanced practitioners, uh, PAs and nurse practitioners, um, and hiring them and training them and working with them. Um, is there a reason that you've been invested in? those career paths? I don't... <laughs> um, I don't think there's a specific reason. It Historically, you know, when... Well, maybe it does go back to my experiences as a resident, okay? So, so we didn't talk about that that much, but finished med school in 85, started residency 85, and I wanted to learn HIV care, and... Uh, it was kind of siloed at the University of Washington, so um, they didn't have medical students or residents learning HIV care. They were they had a clinic for it, and it was staffed by attending physicians and fellows, and nurse practitioners and PAs. And I wanted to learn HIV care, so I twisted some arms and made some noise, and I got a longitudinal clinic in the HIV clinic starting my second year of residency. I. I had that in addition to my general primary care clinic. And so I, I, was, I was a provider in this clinic starting in 87, and um, my colleagues were mostly NPs and PAs, mm -hmm. and, and um, some of whom are still my friends. Um, and, and it was, um, how do I say it? I want to say it in a way that doesn't sound wrong. Um, 
we were colleagues. I mean, I'll just say that. So, like, there's some physicians that have kind of a, um, a different kind of attitude about NPs and PAs that, and some, some of it is a little bit of a, a turf attitude about people stepping on each other's toes or encroaching on their territory. But for me, especially because, again, this is like being a battleground, right? And so these are my, like, fellow warriors for trying to help folks with this horrible, hopeless illness and, and they were my buddies. And so um, I never felt either like like superior or, or that different, really. We were all healthcare providers doing the same thing. So, um, so I had that experience. And then um, after I'd been in practice a few years, like maybe in 1994, because it was still the bad old days, um, a physician assistant that I knew who was in an HIV-oriented practice called me and said, um, said, we have to meet, can we talk? We met, and she said, um, the practice I'm in is, is uh, disintegrating and I need to land someplace. And I have a group of patients that really depend on me and can I join you? And we didn't have a lot of space. You know this old space where <laughs> we're at, right? Um, that was Pam. And um, so I said, sure. So Pam came along and, uh, and uh, that was my first experience uh, once I was out of training working with the PA, and um, and it was great. It was like, I don't know, it was, worked, right? So, mm -hmm. like, why not, right? And yep. and so that's, and and so I've always worked with NPs and PAs and always felt like um, it's a good relationship. It's not the same as working with a physician um, mm -hmm. because people come from different uh, training and people's um, sort of authority is slightly different as far as what a person can and can't do. It's 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 not that different, but there's just a few things. Um, and we learn from each other, which is great. Um, I actually would have a harder time probably working with another physician in the office because um, I think we might butt heads a little bit more, <laughs> um, which is kind of a problem, actually, because now with my practice is me and two PAs and NP, there, it, I can't retire, you know, because there has to be an MD in the office. So, I'm trying to figure that one out. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I don't know. I think about it a lot. I don't have a great solution because um, I want the practice to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, I want it to keep going after I'm gone, after I retire or die, um, because I think we do, you know, we do a good thing. We have a, a large cadre of patients that depend on us and now there's four providers here and it's just because of the way the regulatory system works and the licensing works that there has to be an MD um, um, I have various things I'm working on I mean what I don't want to do is have the practice either disintegrate or get absorbed into a big system and not be what it is now because really <clears throat> it's not only that it's a place where LGBT people can be comfortable and that there's like one less thing to deal with with their provider because it's, this is really a queer space, you mm -hmm. know? It's, it's kind of amazing. That's the other kind of amazing thing. When I think about my work life, my career, which I don't like to call it that, but my, my decades of work, um, I would never in a million years have imagined that I would have spent my time in just a completely queer environment for like almost 30 years where being cisgender heterosexual is like the great minority. 
Um, it's just it's just crazy. But but I want to try to keep that going, and 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 hopefully we'll be able to do that. Yeah, I think you have a very unique and magical space, especially now in the changing world of medicine, where private practice is like you know a dying breed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what has this place meant to you over these years? <clears throat> oh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 it's home in a certain way. I mean, I have home, home, but this is a different kind of home. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's rewarding. It's the, it's a family, um, I don't know. It's been it's it's been much more rewarding to me than just about anything else I could think of having done in medicine is is working kind of inside the community. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been an amazing gift. I mean, from my point of view, I'm I'm just actually like really grateful to the gay community because that's who really created created this practice. Um, it's um, it's a, it's really a, a, a product of the gay community because the practice is the people that it's not only the people that are working here and taking care of folks, but it's really the people that come here for their care. That's really well said. Yeah. What else should we know? What else do you want to say? <laughs> I talked it out. I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shalit, for spending some time uh, with us today. I really, really appreciate it and all the work you do for the Seattle community. Thank it's you. just marvelous. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.